For the few of you who were occupied in other tasks during the first hour, we're talking about the uh, roles of each gender in the marriage relationship. We talked about husband's responsibilities in the first hour, and toward the end of the second, or the, toward the end of that first hour, we began uh, looking at uh, wives' responsibilities in the marriage relationship. We've been looking at um, Titus chapter two, verses four and five, and we've come to the uh, the part of the list. Uh, wherein wives are told to be obedient to their own husbands. I'd like to turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and read uh, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul tells us that Jesus, prior to his incarnation, was in the form of God. John says it this way at the beginning of his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Before he came to earth, Jesus was the Word. He was God. He was divine, and is divine for that matter. Paul also brings out that Jesus was equal with God and therefore has the same value as God. And I understand equal in this passage to mean of the same value. They are of the same essence. They are divine in their nature. And the Jews, as they listened to Jesus teach, understood this particular implication. In John chapter 5, verse 18, John tells us that the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that, he was, that God was his father, making himself equal with God. What's astounding about Jesus Christ is he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And this passage uh, has been difficult to understand, mainly because of the way it's been translated in some of the older translations. The ESV does a very nice job with this particular verse. The ESV translates it this way. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the New English translation, the Revised Standard, and the New American Standard are all virtually the same. They all agree on on how this is translated. So Jesus, being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something he would hold on to at all costs for his own advantage. He was willing to surrender or relinquish this equality with God to a certain extent in order to accomplish God's will. So being equal in value with God... Jesus willingly gave up something of himself in order to accomplish the purpose of God. This is how I understand it. He did not hold on to this at all costs. He was willing to let it go, to give it up, so that he could humble himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What did Jesus give up? 
Well, even though he was equal in terms of his divinity, his value, Jesus chose to submit himself to the will of his heavenly Father. Or to put it another way, in a sense, God became obedient. And this is what the writer of Hebrews emphasizes in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So how does this apply to wives? Without question, women are of equal value to men. We're all created in the image of God. To take it a step further... Christian women are equal with men in terms of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Wives are not told to submit because they are less in value, they are less capable, and I could go on and on. Rather, sisters are called to submit to their husbands because this is the will of God. Just as it was God's will for Christ to suffer and die, so too it is God's will for wives to submit to their husbands. Or to put it another way, Men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are called to love their husbands as Christ loved his heavenly Father. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me a commandment, so I do. So the example of submission for women is the same as the example for men loving their wives. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of submission. He is a being of equal value with God the Father, yet he chose in order to carry out the will of God, to divest himself of that, submit himself to the will of the Heavenly Father, and uh, do so to the point of death. This is the perfect picture of submission. What does submission require? Well, submission requires strength. As Jesus teaches us, one chooses to submit, and this is a difficult choice to make, and we as husbands should not take this choice lightly. It requires humility. This is emphasized by Paul in his comments about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And it's emphasized by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submission requires strength, it requires humility, and it requires faith in God. This is what Peter brings out in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God, not trusted in their husband, but trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. To my fellow husbands, let's do everything we can to make our wives burden on this point as light as possible. In choosing to submit to you, your wife is surrendering some of her personal autonomy in order to please the Lord. 
This is a tremendous sacrifice and we should not underestimate its value. There may be moments where you as a husband have to choose against the wishes of your wife. And I pray that those will be few and far between. But I urge you, I urge you if you can to work as hard to find ways to understand your wife's perspective and make decisions accordingly. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Remember the instructions to wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 is preceded by submitting to one another in the fear of God. And James describes the wisdom as above as being uh, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. My brothers, we need to work very hard to make this sacrifice our wives are making for the Lord's sake a joy and not a burden. Which is one reason why I spent my time talking about men dwelling with their wives with understanding before we got to this point. If you have a wife who is willing to submit to her husband and her husband is loving her as Christ loved the church and is endeavoring to understand her, this is a relationship that works. And it's a beautiful thing to see. But it takes a lot of work. A lot of work. The last thing I want to say to, to Christian sisters this morning is uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. In that passage... Paul says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Please don't treat your husband as a child to be raised. Please don't make excuses or rationalize his behavior. And please don't give into the modern day tendency to defame and degrade masculinity. Find ways to appreciate your husband and his masculinity. Now I had a few comments between... uh, the first and second session that I'm going to get to here in just a second, but I will open it up. Does anybody have anything they want to say on the topic of submission or on anything else that uh, we've talked about so far this morning or any other rabbit you'd like to chase? I'm, uh, I guess I'm open to the last one, but we'll see. Steve. On the word submission, and perhaps you are planning to go into this, but the Greek term itself, one of the meanings is to bring alongside, hupatazo, ah. and what you were describing about Jesus, especially the Philippians passage, is certainly the epitome of that. Yes. This is what he is trying to get us to do, is come alongside him to serve God. And that's what submission is. Yeah. Uh, so I can't, I can't make my wife submit. And that is not my task. It is her task to choose that as you're bringing out. And that's one of the mistakes that we make is thinking that we're supposed to do that, uh, instruct her how to do that, you know, make her do that. You know, that's that's getting it all wrong. She chooses it. And yes, we are most pleased when she does that in the same way that the Lord is most pleased when we choose to come alongside Christ. I didn't have it in my notes, but thank you for adding that. That was a great addition. 
other comments or questions about submission or anything else, someone in the back back there, Brian, and I can't, I'm sorry, I don't have my glasses on. I don't need my glasses to read my notes. It's Roger from Martinsville. Yeah, hi, Roger. You know, you said that we should make this burden as easy as we can on our wives. And first thing that popped into my mind was the Matthew eleven thirty, yeah. where Jesus said, "My yoke is easy, and my burden is light." So, yeah. if I am going to pattern pattern after my Lord, I am going to have to do a better job of easing this load. You know, I made the comment to someone out there during the break that, you know, sometimes I'm clueless when my wife says uh, that kitchen trash is full. It's like, yeah, it is. And it's like, she needs to say, well, it needs to go outside. To it, Roger. You know, take it outside. <laughs> oh, okay. That's I got it. That's a fix it moment. Okay, yeah. yeah. I thought maybe she was just making an observation. So make the light burden just a little bit lighter by yes. just figuring it out on my own. Yeah, thank you for bringing up that example of Jesus. What a great, pertinent example. Other questions, comments, thoughts that you all have? I got. I think it's Dan Green here, yeah. Sorry, Dan, the hat threw me off there for a second. Well, just kind of going off Steve's comment for a moment. There are really three commands in this Ephesians 5 passage, and they are, to me, they're non-negotiable. If we just understand... That, that these are given to us. 21, we're submit to, we are to, to submit to one another. Yeah. Uh, 22, wives are to submit. 25, husbands are to love. There are no qualifications there for it. It doesn't make any difference uh, what education we have, what talents we have. God just says, follow these principles. And I just love the fact that you you started with the idea that if we put our effort into serving Christ first, then these things are going to fall into place. Yes, and not that they're going to be easy, yep. but there will be there will be power in us to deal with these things as long as we each take care of our own command. Yeah, and not try to fix everybody else. That's so right. We get into trouble when we try to fix each other, when really the energy needs to be spent on drawing closer to the Lord individually. Tom. I disagree with our bosses, and, um, and, and they're wrong, and we have to uh, convince them otherwise that they're wrong, and, and so we have to make an argument for that. And, and that's perfectly acceptable for because... And that's perfectly acceptable for them to convince us otherwise. And it can be, you know, more stern than others. You know, so that's not being not submissive. That's just making your argument, I think. So I think the term, you know, submission is somewhat, um, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, you know, if, if I say, if I stick to my guns, yeah. But... They are allowed to disagree with us and, and try to make that argument, and uh, that's perfectly fine also, I think. so, And, and we need to understand that also, I think. <laughs> yeah, submission doesn't imply silence. The first part of your comment kind of broke up a little bit, so I, I, I think this is what you're saying. Submission doesn't imply silence. 
Correct. We need to hear our wife out, dwell with her with understanding. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, whoa, we got hands back behind here, Brian. I don't see anybody this direction. Wait, it's Alan. Alan. So you didn't talk about how the wives are to submit or be subjective to the husband in everything. Okay. Um, I recently did a little looking into this and hopefully can clarify just some. Every and thing, two words here, and every meaning all, or everything that is there. But the thing was the interesting word. I looked at this as those things that are elevated ah. are of importance. Mm-hmm. And what is importance in the marriage is exactly what we have been talking about in the recent comments, even the mission. Yeah. The mission that is established within the marriage, and that is the husband's responsibility to make sure that that wife can be subject to you in everything that this godly marriage represents. Yeah. Thank you for that. There's somebody back behind. Yeah. Candy from the Martinsville Congregation. Hi, Candy. There is a book called Love and Respect that I have read many years ago. A husband cannot love his wife if the wife does not respect her husband and that is something that we can always work on no matter where we are in our marriage I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit Candy and my apologies I know I'm actually disagreeing with that book when I say this I don't see these as reciprocal responsibilities like I I don't see that a husband's the, the husband's command to love his wife depends on his wife being submissive or respecting him. I think he has he's been commanded by Jesus Christ to love her as Christ loves the church, and that doesn't depend on how she acts toward him. What she chooses to do is is obviously going to impact him. It's obviously going to impact their marriage, but ultimately she's answerable to Jesus Christ. So I I, I admit, I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, I just don't see it that way. That my responsibility to love my wife as Christ loved the church, uh, it, it's to Jesus Christ. And regardless of how she chooses to act, I have that responsibility to her. And I'm answerable to Jesus Christ. So, when I fail to love Janine as Christ loves the church... Yes, I'm failing her, but I'm failing Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I don't think that that means then that she should not submit to me. Uh, I think she has that responsibility before the Lord. And all of this is vice versa, obviously, which is why I, I'm trying to frame the class within that vertical relationship. Um, and, and the reason why I, I believe this is because I have heard brethren excuse their ungodly conduct by saying well he or she wasn't doing what he or she was supposed to do well are you going to stand before Jesus Christ and give that answer we can't I mean I just I I and I'm probably coming off kind of strong here because this is something I I believe very deeply I'm very convicted by this I, I can't stand before Jesus Christ and not accept responsibility for my actions. And we, we live in a, a time 
where there is an epidemic affecting us that has nothing to do with bats and pangolins and virology labs and uh, whatever else is going on. It's, it's an epidemic of, of accountability and responsibility and accepting responsibility for my actions. And, uh, you know, we're called by Jesus Christ to be the people he wants us to be. And, you know... I'm thankful that my wife chooses to be who she is, to serve the Lord as she does. But if she didn't, I can't, I'm not in a position to change her. And I still have an obligation to serve Jesus Christ regardless. So, uh, sorry, Candy, I, I disagree with that a little bit, but I'm actually disagreeing with the book. So, you know, very good. All right. Uh, that. You hit a hot button there, but you didn't know that. <laughs> Anything else before we move on? Wade, right back here, Chad. So, Wade, in my line of work, you know, my job is to, you know, make sure people have power. Turn the lights yeah. on. Yeah. And one of the easiest things for me to do is when I come up on somebody and their power is completely out. That's generally an easy fix. But what's harder is when we come up to a house and the lights are on. But something's wrong. They have partial power. So it seems like nine times out of a ten, there's a grounding problem. Hmm. Something's not grounded right. And in, your, in our marriage, it all goes to, is each one grounded? Yeah. Are we grounded in the scriptures? And so many times, people... Uh, come and ask for help you know this is wrong or that's wrong and my only answer is i'm not a counselor all i'm going to do is tell you what the bible says because that's really all i know and that's to me the ultimate authority is are you grounded thank you and i appreciate you saying in your line of work sorry chad but an excellent yeah yeah I'm having a bad influence on you. Do we have somebody else? I'm sorry, I can't see you behind the chair. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I was wanting to go back to the when you were talking about the husbands uh, earlier. Um, you were talking about First Peter three seven, dwelling with our wives with understanding. Linking this back to uh, John Lee's discussion yesterday about how our spouses, all of us, our spouse is a center. Our spouse yeah. isn't perfect, obviously. Um, and maybe I'm the only one in the crowd, but I'm going to guess that a lot of us husbands, when we were early married, thought our wives were perfect. Thought our wives were, you know, just phenomenal. And we have to be careful that we don't hold them to that standard because obviously we're all sinners. None of us are perfect, and we've got to be careful that um, we realize that each other, we will fail at times. We aren't going to be perfect, and we have to make sure we don't try to hold our spouse up to that to that standard. And, and I'll just piggyback on to that a little bit to just say that I, I fear that some brethren may be getting close to making marriage and family into an idol. And... Uh, just be very careful, brethren. And, and, I, and I understand that some of that is a natural response to, to decades of 
of uh, of assault from from Satan. Let's just put it that way. But let's take great care that we we keep things in their proper perspective. Was there someone else over here, Brian? Yes. Is that Michelle? Yes, that's me. Ooh, I didn't know that was so loud. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like to say that maybe um, since I'm not married, I don't have the um, experience in that risk in regard to submitting to my husband. But um, I do know for one thing, um, Christ did not make us submit to him. You know what I mean? Like he... He asks us to submit to him, but he does not force us because, you know, he does not force himself upon anybody. He gives us, you know, that free will. But uh, whenever we were talking about, um, you know, the, the love that a husband is supposed to give is not dependent upon the respect of his wife. It's kind of uh, brought to me John. It's in, it's in the last. I think it's John, the last book of John, and it talks about because Peter was talking to Jesus, and you know he said, uh, "Do you love me?" and he was asking him, like, many times, do you love me? And Peter said, of course, of course I love you. You know I love you. And he was, you know, getting disturbed in his spirit. And he kept, and Jesus kept saying, well, then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, you know. And whenever... He was talking about um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, take your time. Whenever he was talking about um, what he was going to have to go through, um, Peter goes, "Well, what about this one? Yeah. What about John?" Uh, what about, you know, whoever? And the thing is, is that that is not our place to ask, you know? And, um, I feel that we're all going to give an account and you're not going to be walking up there with anybody. It's you and the Lord. And Jesus said to John or Jesus said to Peter, what is that to you? Of what's going to happen to this one. Yeah. You follow me. Yeah. You choose me. So that, that's all I got. Uh, that's an excellent comment. And I, it just, <laughs> it's just excellent. Excellent. We get so caught up with what other people are doing that we're not paying attention to our own lives. You know, it's, it's the same principle or it's, it, it's, it's a similar principle to what Jesus is teaching when he's talking about, about logs and specks. Like, get your own house in order before you go around criticizing the world. 
Don't be so, so caught up in other people's business that you are completely uh, unaware of your own failings. And, you know, I'm convinced if we will just spend time developing our relationship with the Lord individually, a lot of these things just solve themselves. Because we're not trying to fix someone else. And it's that attempt to fix someone else where we, we just end up getting ourselves into a lot of trouble. And speaking of a lot of trouble, I need to get moving here. So I'm sorry. I, I'm going to have to put all these other comments on hold here. And I'll try to leave a little time at the end. So bear with me. I had some comments in between the sessions that I need to uh, share. One was from uh, someone who went through a life-changing experience. And... Uh, uh, an experience that, that changed him profoundly. And uh, he shared that an older sister had pulled aside his wife and, and explained to her what exactly was going to happen in this, in this transformation and helped her understand that her husband wasn't going to be the same man any longer. And uh, he thought that was just an excellent example of an older woman teaching a younger. And as I said to him... We just need more and more of that in the church. Uh, another person uh, observed that, uh, that men's tendency to protect and defend can, can have unfortunate consequences, especially when their wives or children have been guilty of, uh, of, of, have been guilty of some sin. And rather than acknowledge the fact that there is sin and perhaps offer a word of correction, their, their, their propensity to protect and defend kicks in. And, and what did they do instead? They, they rationalize, they explain away. I thought that was a, a really good observation and, and glad that it was shared with me. Uh, another person... Uh, appreciated that I emphasized listening, but thought it needed to be said that we should not underestimate the potential of words to do real harm to our spouse. And this person has also noted that uh, in, in watching, this was a woman, so I, I, I'm going to share that just so it helps everyone understand the the context that this was given, but she has observed young wives being critical of their husbands when their husbands are trying to help and just doing the best they can. They, they see young wives being critical of the way the husband does it or they can't figure out why they did it rather than just expressing appreciation and, and helping their husband understand that there's actually a better way to do this, but, but being critical instead. And she she was very emotional as she was sharing this with me, so I wanted to pass that along. Um, and then I have this comment that's, that was written out and given to me. It was given to me by a sister in Christ. And it's a, a comment on Proverbs 14 and 1. Uh, a woman builds her house with wisdom. She says, You made the comment that if there is a failure, the man will be held accountable. Speaking from a wife's point of view, let us wives not be the reason... For his failure. There is a reason we were created as a help and not a hinder. And I thought that was an excellent comment. Very good. And I appreciate all those comments that happened between the, uh, between the sessions. I was given a list of eight questions. Here's for the first question. I don't know if I'm going to get to all these. I'm doubting it at this point. So I'm going to go through them in 
the order of what I perceive is the importance uh, for this morning's sessions. What about cases where the wife is more spiritually mature than her husband? What does the wife do while waiting for her husband to mature? All right. Sisters, if you find yourself in this position, and I rather suspect that uh, many of you do, because many of us guys take too long to grow up, and I put myself in that category. Remember, before you are his wife, you are his sister in Christ. Yes, marriage does make your relationship with him more intimate, But at a fundamental level, you are his sister in Christ. And it's this relationship, your relationship in Jesus Christ, and not your marriage relationship, that will hopefully last for eternity. So in my judgment, how you proceed in this situation is predicated on this basic assumption. My husband is first and foremost my brother in Christ. So as a sister in Christ... How should you deal with a less mature member of the body? First of all, remain cognizant of your own faults and failings so that you do not become resentful. That's something that we've touched on a couple of different times in comments along the way. Remain cognizant of your own failings and faults so that you do not become resentful. A marriage where one spouse is over-functioning and the other is under-functioning is a breeding ground for anger and resentment. Sisters who are more spiritually mature than their husbands, but who are commanded to assume a submissive attitude, are especially prone to these temptations. And James talks about not grumbling against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. One way sisters can be on guard against this temptation is to accept a healthy dose of self-awareness. No matter how capable you might be, no matter how strong your faith might be, or how much further along in your walk with the Lord you are, you are neither a finished product nor are you free from weakness. And regardless of how disappointing your husband may be at times... I am certain that you can find redeemable qualities, redeeming qualities, in his character and conduct. Do not lose sight of those. Philippians 2.3 is a key attitude. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. The lowliness of mind is the aforementioned attitude of self-awareness. Esteeming others better than oneself is the recognition that even in your husband's relative immaturity, there are redeeming qualities to his character and strengths that he does bring to the table. Acknowledge those. Dwell on those. Make sure you put your focus there. Self-awareness combined with genuine appreciation and thankfulness will help keep anger and resentment at bay. Here's another thing to think about. In most situations, you can find a way to do what is right regardless of your husband's decisions. Or to put it another way, find a way to be an Abigail. Abigail. 
As the woman of the home, Abigail had responsibilities to show hospitality. When Nabal made his foolhardy decision to insult David and refuse him and his men hospitality, he snared Abigail in that decision. So she assumed responsibility when she went to David for not showing proper hospitality, and she sought to make amends. Abigail was under no illusions about her husband. And you know what she says about him? Was it disrespectful? Yeah, it was. But it shows that she knew who he was and what he was about. She understood him and his nature. But she found a way to work around her husband's folly and do the right thing. In the process, she spared Nabal from the consequences of his foolhardy decision. Now, most men are not Nabals. Most men, most husbands who are less spiritually mature, can be reasoned with and persuaded to do the right thing. But if not, sisters, you've got to find a way to do the right thing yourself. Find a way to respectfully and honorably do what is right. You have an obligation before Jesus Christ to do what is right. Which takes us back to that original conceptualization of the marriage relationship. Another thing to say about this, have the fight. I really feel for sisters in this situation. They want to be submissive, they want to serve the Lord, they want to respect their husbands, they don't want to be a contentious wife. And yet some find themselves in extremely precarious positions where spiritual compromises are being demanded of them. And over time, these little concessions begin to add up. And if you bear them in silence, thinking that you have to be the dutiful, submissive wife, the results will not be good. Remember, at a fundamental level, your Christian husband is your brother in Christ. And what should you do when your brother offends you? Jesus says, go to your brother in private, just you and him alone, and make known the way he has erred against you. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. He says it a different way in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sisters, if your less mature husband expects you to compromise what you believe to be right... Talk to him about it. Identify the exact problem. Connect it with scripture. Dig your heels in and with as respectful a tone as you can muster, help your husband understand your point of view. He is supposed to dwell with you with understanding. So help him understand. Here's another way to conceptualize this. Paul compares the husband-wife relationship to the relationship between Christ and his church. Think of all the passages when we are encouraged, where we are encouraged to confide our troubles in the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus wants his church to communicate with him. He wants his church to confide in him. 
He wants us to unload our burdens and troubles and cares. If that's the relationship Jesus wants with his church, what does that teach us about the husband-wife relationship? And let's take this a step further. Earlier, I encouraged wives to think about the example of Jesus submitting to his father. Jesus submitted to his father to the point of death, even the death on the cross. But were there moments when the father called Jesus to do something Jesus was reluctant to do? Yes. Father, please take this cup away from me. Jesus was communicating his reservations to the heavenly father. And was he heard? Hebrews 5, 7 says he was heard. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Here's what I'm driving at, sisters. Submission does not imply silence. That's not the relationship Jesus had with his father. It's not the relationship Jesus wants with his church. And that's not the meaning of submission in marriage. Sisters, your point of view does matter. How you feel does matter. And this is especially vital when it comes to matters with spiritual implications. So speak up. Make him hear your point of view. Talk to him about it. Make it known. Finally, determine what is and what is not your responsibility. In Galatians chapter 6, verse number 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A burden is a load that someone cannot carry on their own. Jesus, our yoke fellow, Roger mentioned this in his comment earlier, Jesus, our yoke fellow, helps us carry the burdens we cannot bear by ourselves. And as his followers, we are called to help our fellow disciples bear their burdens, loads that they cannot carry by themselves. Thus, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Everyone enters into marriage with baggage. Everyone does. And some have more baggage than their spouses do. And to a degree, my spouse's baggage become my baggage. I have a responsibility to help her bear burdens beyond what she is able to carry on her own and vice versa. But what becomes difficult in marriage is discerning between Galatians 6.2 and Galatians 6.5. In Galatians 6.5, Paul says, For each one shall bear his own load. A load is a weight we can bear on our own, by ourselves, with no assistance. A marriage becomes complicated and dysfunctional when we fail to discern between what is a load that needs help bearing and what is a load that someone should be able to carry on their own. Or to put it another way, we fail to discern between what is and what is not my responsibility to my, my spouse. Let me just give you an example. And I, I'm still talking to sisters about, about how, to, to, uh, how to cope with your husbands who may be less spiritually mature. But let me give you an example from, from my point of view to hopefully illustrate this point. To what degree am I responsible for how my wife feels? 
As a husband, I'm called to love her, to respect her, to honor her, to nourish and cherish her. But what if I'm doing the best I can? I'm fulfilling those obligations to to the degree which I am able. But she remains sad and withdrawn or careworn. Is it my job under those circumstances to make her happy, to fix the problem, so to speak? No, it's my responsibility to listen to her, to encourage her, to offer advice if she asks for it, and to attend to my other God-given obligations as her husband. I should care how she feels. I should be concerned with how she feels. And if my words or my conduct have been responsible for how she feels, then I need to get that problem fixed. But if all that has been said, if all that has been done, and she still feels this way, at some point, this goes beyond my control. So sisters, your responsibility is to aspire to Christ-likeness in your character, to become all you can be as a child of God. Your role as a wife is one slice of the broader calling to which you have been called. And yes, part of that calling means to fulfill the law of Christ by helping your husband bear burdens that are beyond his strength to bear alone. But by the same token... There are loads that he must bear by himself, on his own, including his own individual responsibility to Christ-likeness. Now, without question, you can encourage his spiritual growth in many, many ways. But remember, you are first and foremost his sister in Christ. So think about how you could integrate all those passages that talk to us about encouraging spiritual growth in your relationship with him. But always remember, at the end of the day, your husband's soul is not your responsibility. It's his. It's his responsibility. So while spouses are responsible for bearing each other's burdens, we also must work hard to discern between what is a burden to help bear and what is a load. If we fail to do so, marriage quickly devolves from a mutual partnership into one spouse over-functioning in a variety of areas, which creates anger and resentment toward the under-functioning spouse. And I'll just close this point by saying this, and I'm not going to have time to open it up for questions and comments because i got one more thing I've got to talk about. But let me say this one last point. You can't change your husband but you can inspire him to change. Men enter marriage expecting women to stay the same, and women change. Women enter marriage expecting men to change, and men stay the same. We think we can change each other or that the other won't change, but quite frankly, the only one who can change anything in this equation is the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Interacting with the will of the individual involved. You can't change your husband, but you can be a godly woman. And by your godliness, you can inspire him. Janine makes me want to be a better man. And I know 
that there are godly women sitting in this audience who have inspired their husbands to become better men. You may not be able to change him, but you can inspire him to change. One last thing I really need to talk about, and I want to flip this over to the men for a few minutes as I draw this to a close. Another question I was asked is, what makes a good leader in the family? As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of the parable of the Minas over in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Now, you might be wondering, what does that parable have to do with leadership? Well, as I got to thinking about it, there's some really interesting lessons that can be drawn out about this that can help us as brothers in Christ, as husbands, to be more effective leaders. Now, as you may recall, the parable concerns a wealthy nobleman who is set to receive a kingdom in another land. And while he's gone, he, he gives ten of his servants... Uh, a single mina to invest. When he returns, he demands an accounting, and we're told how three of the servants respond. Two of the servants had invested successfully and were rewarded with authority over ten cities and five cities respectively. It's that reward of authority that caught my attention. What was it about these servants that, that told the master, these guys need to be given more authority? Here's what I gleaned. Brothers, authority may be conferred by God. But our family's confidence in our authority is earned. What does it require of someone to grow one mina into ten? When Jesus rewarded the first two men with authority over those cities, he was not handing out participation trophies. Rather, the first two men implicitly demonstrated competence and were consequently rewarded with greater authority. If we want our wives and our children to respect the authority God has given us, we must endeavor to become competent leaders in the home. It's competence. The road to competence, though, is filled with potholes and detours. The parable only shows us the successes of these two men. But anyone who's done some investing knows that along the way there are failures. Even Warren Buffett, who's probably the most successful investor of all time, calls Berkshire Hathaway the worst purchase he's ever made, or one of the worst purchases he's ever made in his career. If you look at the history of Warren Buffett, and especially in those early years, they're filled with all kinds of failures and mistakes. But with dogged determination, he built this into a company whose net worth was somewhere around $655 billion when I checked this about a month ago. So when I say that we as husbands and fathers should aspire to competence, I'm not saying that competence is failure-free. What I'm saying is how we handle failure will ultimately determine how, how competent we become as leaders. The two men who saw a return on their investment were given the same amount, one mina, and yet one returned ten and the other five. Certainly it could be that the one who returned 10 had natural skills that made him a more gifted investor. But perhaps the difference between the two men came down instead to how each one of them handled failure. I think that's as likely an explanation as any other.
How we as husbands and fathers respond to failure will determine the degree to which we are competent in both realms. A competent leader is also trustworthy. Jesus praises both of these men for their faithfulness. The master entrusted them with his money, and they proved by their conduct to be trustworthy men. And because they were trustworthy, the master increased their responsibilities. Trust is at the base of all relationships. Broken trust between a husband and wife or between parents and children leads to harmful and potentially disastrous consequences. Trust depends on truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul urges us, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Truth maintains our interconnectedness with one another. And if we're honest with ourselves, with our wives, and with our children, they will in turn trust us, even when we make mistakes. Trust is built on truth. It's also built by open lines of communication. James urges us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Men whose gentleness make them approachable, who listen to understand, and who think before speaking encourage a deep reservoir of trust in their families. So a competent leader is trustworthy. He's faithful. A competent leader also accepts responsibility and does not blame others for his failures. The third servant blamed his failure on the master. For I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, yeah, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Here's a quick translation of what he's saying. My failure is your fault. My failure is your fault. The practice of transferring responsibility for my actions to either external forces or other people has reached epidemic proportions in our society. As leaders of the home, trusted with a measure of authority from God, we should be willing to assume full or partial responsibility for the failures of our home. And please notice, I said either full or partial. Not every failure of the home is our responsibility. There are factors outside of our control. However, I think it's a good practice as husbands to either find some way I contributed to the problem or to see something I could have avoided in retrospect. Again, this does not mean that I should assume full responsibility. It simply means I'm willing to examine myself and hold myself accountable and above all to learn. A competent leader is also humble. The authority with which Jesus rewards the faithful servants is an authority nested within a greater authority. Their authority over 15 cities is under the auspices of this master who's been given this kingdom. He's now this newly crowned king. It's an authority within an authority. 
And this is consistent with the theme found throughout Scripture. All earthly authority is ultimately answerable to a greater authority. Our current culture is obsessed with interpreting all human interactions in terms of hierarchies and power dynamics. But in doing so, they overlook a key fact. Genuine authority constrains the exercise of power. When Peter cut off the ear of the high priest, Jesus rebuked him. Or do you think that I can now pray, cannot pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that moment, Jesus was constraining real authority and thereby yielded himself to the will of one greater than him. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. It was the humility of Jesus, demonstrated by his submission to a greater authority, which constrained him in that moment. But there's something else to notice about this example. He constrained his authority out of genuine concern for the good of the human race. Authoritarians seek to control the actions of others, to wield power in order to manage how others think, act, and feel. This is at the root of abusive behavior. Men who want to control their wives and children through physical violence or emotional or verbal abuse. It's all about control. But in contrast... Those who use their authority in a godly way feel a very deep responsibility for the well-being of those whom they are called to lead. This is the attitude of Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility. Humility <clears throat> moves a competent leader to be authoritative, not authoritarian. So those are just a few thoughts on what makes a godly leader of the family. <clears throat> I'm out of time. Thank you for your patience, especially from the last half hour. I know I had to blow through a lot of material really fast. <coughs> Sorry, I swallowed a bug there, and it's kind of gross. <coughs> I'm sorry for the fact that I couldn't get to questions and comments here at the end. I, of course, am available after class or any time the rest of this week to talk about any of the rest of this with you. I appreciate all the help you gave me earlier this morning. It's always a pleasure to teach here, and uh, look forward to seeing you all Friday morning.